And now for something completely machinima. Welcome to this week's and now for... <laughs> and now for completely machinima. No. Oh, who, who the hell are we? This is the right take again. we're going to use. This is going to be the take. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> now I've lost it. Uh, hello and uh, welcome to this week's uh, and now for something completely machinima podcast. I'm Tracy Harwood, I'm one of the co-hosts and today I'm joined with uh, joined by Ricky and Damien. And hello. Um, hello. And unfortunately, Phil's not here with us this week. Um, but he has sent us uh, a great film selection that we're going to be talking about shortly. Now, this uh, this week's theme, um, which follows on from a conversation that we had last month, actually, is to do with machinima classics. And uh, by classics, we mean the... Uh, adaptation of literature um, from from you know old texts, if you like, uh, to uh, any kind of uh, new 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 media format, really uh, that that presents a new story in machinima. And we've 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 kind of had a, a great look around to uh, you know dive back into the the archives a little of, of machinima and we've got a really interesting selection of films and um a couple of interviews uh linked to classics and i think before we start talking about the way in which we see these having evolved over the years we'll have a look a listen um to the guys about the films that they've picked uh, and then come back to to this idea of how they've been adapted so, Ricky, do you want to kick us off with your selection this week? Sure. Um, I'd like to talk uh, first about, uh, yeah, interestingly, when I dove into this subject, which came out of a conversation and a discussion several months ago uh, about classic machinima, not, again, the distinction is not classic machinima, but machinima adaptations of the classics. Um, I just found a wealth of interesting uh, subjects and films. So it was really hard to come up with uh, something that I thought uh, I should present here because there was just so many. But I was able to uh, narrow it down to some that I thought would be particularly interesting to people. And the first one is a film that I did the uh, sound design on, and it's called Snow Witch by uh, Britannica Dreams. Um, Snow Witch is an adaptation of Lafcadio Hearn's collection of Japanese um, myths and folk tales. And um, the I went back and reread the original story. And this adaptation is really, really good. And she did it in The Sims. And what's particularly interesting about this adaptation, it's a sort of horror film about the vengeance of a spurned lover. Um, but what's, what's interesting about it is that it has none of that sort of, I don't know how to describe it in the Sims animation style. It's a kind of herky-jerky quality of the Sims animation. And it's all sort of, it's all very light, very silly. 
you know, she got rid of that entirely in this. She man and and you know that's not easy because you can't control the animation in a, in a, a Sims character the way you can in others where you you select and you you know you you you're able to to do precise animation. You have to create the behavior mood for the character and then you shoot. So I wish if I could go back in time, I would like to look over her shoulder while she was working on this because she came up with just flawless animation. Plus the style of it is very eerie. It's creepy, even though it has this beautiful quality of set in the winter and the characters have this Asian design to them. Um, but I thought her adaptation was spot on. It's, it's a serious adaptation, even though it has some humor in it. Uh, it's a poetic adaptation of it. And I personally found the experience of working on the sound in that to be uh, one of my favorite experiences because I really like detail in sound. And sometimes the the directors that I work with, they either think it takes too much time or, or uh, they don't like the stuff I come up with because it's overly detailed. Um, she was great. Uh, the woman who runs, I, I forget her name. I'm sorry. Michelle Pettit Me. Michelle Pettit Me. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, she was so encouraging in the sound design that I think she helped me make my sound better. And I really, really enjoyed working on this. What did you guys think of the film? Well, okay, so I can tell you a little bit uh, from from my my perspective from of way back when. So, this was one of the first films that made me think that Machinima had a, a massive future as a storytelling medium. Hmm. Um, it won Best Story at the European Machinima Film Festival that I directed back in two thousand and seven, and I can remember. On the panel that selected it um, was a reviewer from the BBC. In fact, he was the former head of children's TV. And I can remember that panel were hugely impressed um, with it, actually uh, resulting uh, in them putting some effort into exploring the potential of machinima for themselves. Uh, wow. So this was a, a quite an influential film um, uh, and in fact, uh, probably what folks don't know, it was the film that resulted in Leo Lucian Bay working for them on a project a few months after the um, festival, which was in October, um, which is how, in the end, he comes to credit his own film, Beast, if you remember that, we covered that in the very first podcast we did, right? Um, as being the basis of his career at Mass Effect, um, which it was, but it's this film that was the inspiration and the backstory to how he was recognised and recruited for a project at the Beat, um, after which he moved to Canada. Um, so, you know, this um, Snow Witch, I think, was, um, I mean, it was a really fascinating adaptation of this, as you said, Ricky, this uh, peasant folktale, y um, y Yuki Ona, I think, Yuki Ona, mm -hmm. which means snow woman in Japanese. Um and uh, it comes from his book, Kwaidon, um, which, uh, you know, translated as, as ghost stories, was published in, what, 1904, and has been the subject of an awful lot of reenactments and portrayals uh, in all sorts of different um, media ever since. Um, and I think what's, what's interesting about this um, adaptation is 
is is the narration. Soundscape is is spot on. The narration is very precise and dramatic uh, and mm. and evocative of of Japanese rural life. Really, what you would expect or anticipate um, Japanese rural life to be. Um, I think it's been performed beautifully in the, in the Sims, um, and you know the whole thing. Really, it it really is brought brought to life, but I, but I I kind of have a, a sort of a question. Maybe Ricky, you know the answer to this. Really, it's narrated in in English, very clipped English, and I think mm. it's quite an interesting choice because the author of the of the book, well, he was he was Irish Greek. He was he was he was born in Greece, but moved to Ireland as a as a very young man, and then emigrated. To America at a at a, a young age, nineteen, I think, lived there for twenty odd years before moving to J- Japan. But um, I wonder why would you why would you narrate this in clipped English? Do you, do you remember the the decisions that were made about that? I don't I don't remember any decisions. I wasn't part of the decision making process in terms of her narration. I just she told me that she had got a narrator. And she liked it, and she just sent me the stuff. Um, I liked the narration because I thought it it was invisible enough that it it didn't dominate the story that was being told. And I it uh, I, I thought it was interesting because it was a choice to do a British clipped narration as opposed to an Asian narrator. Mm-hmm. I think possibly when that when the when the film came out. Uh, that issue of having a native speaker speak the tales of their country isn't as uh, prominent as it is today. I think it would be interesting to to to, to see this project being done with a native narrator. Mm-hmm. But the clipped quality of it, uh, I thought, was very useful because it kept the story going. It kept it. The, the story always moving forward. Mm. It wasn't about the narrator stopping to make a poetic um, uh, image out of phrases. Like if you got Laurence Olivier to narrate it, it would be a great narration, but would be an inappropriate narration because he dramatized everything. Mm. This was less, this was almost a documentary style narration, mm. which I thought was really interesting and useful. Yeah. Yeah. So, when what do you I, think, Damien? Yeah, so when I saw you'd picked this one, I, I faced a very difficult decision of, do I actually want to watch this again? Because when it was released, I loved this film, and it was so well done in The Sims. It looked stunning. And I didn't want my memory of it to be spoiled by the way that I know that watching it now, <laughs> the graphical quality is not going to match up to what, the way I remember it. So in the end, I did not watch it again, because I I remember it very well, and obviously my memory is going to enhance the visuals a bit compared to how it actually looks but i remember when it was released and it kind of blew everyone away in the community that we had yes yes it did um and i started talking to michelle and we had a pretty good friendship going for a long time because i she kind of inspired me to pick up the sims for for my own um, uh, projects and so um i was asking her how did she do all this kind of stuff and she gave me all this, this is mods and she was very encouraging and um, I just loved everything that she released and I think Snow which is still my favorite um, yeah film that she ever released but uh, yeah it's I 
don't know what else I can say that you guys haven't covered. It's, it's a stunning film from what I remember. Um, and it's still one of my favorite machine films, not just one that she's done, but uh, that I've ever seen. Uh, yeah. And I think it's definitely a worthy uh, choice for this month. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's one of the best cinema films ever made. It also put the bar very high for people. If you were going to do an adaptation of a literary classic, you better do it right because this is the way to do it. Um, it also kicked the idea that uh, sloppy filmmaking is acceptable, uh, which was one of my problems a lot with the community. Although I, I, I become much more uh, accepting of that now because let people create what they want to create, you know. But if you're going to set out and you're going to adapt something like this that's serious and that um, has a high quality, then you better do it right. And she did. Now, one of my concerns about her was that she did many other excellent, outstanding films and then just dropped off the map. Do you know what happened with her and her filmmaking? Um, she got more involved in Second Life. And um, I think she was exploring it as a potential way to create machinima, but then got more caught up in the social aspect of it. Um, so it kind of took the time away from her time away from making machinima. But then she also like uh, Leon Lucian Bay went to work for Bioware. Ah. Uh, and I think because she was doing that as her day job, she, the last thing she wanted to do was to come home and then do the same thing at home. Yeah, of course. Um, so she worked on the first Dragon Age game. And I do remember at the time she told me which cut scenes that she worked on. So I would know to, because I, I said, I want to know what, what did you do in the game so I can watch it. And she gave me a list of them, which obviously I can't remember off the top of my head that there's something about the the ritual scene with Morrigan towards the end of the game I think she animated a bit if you turn down Morrigan in, and Morrigan kind of turns into a wolf and disappears, she animated ah. that and she did some stuff in the forest with the elves I believe but I can't remember exactly what it was that she was, did there um and I think she was a little bit involved with one of the Mass Effect games as well, but I don't. I might be Mass Effect Two. Bioware had a huge brain drain from Machinima. Yeah. Uh, man, yeah. tons of really very talented and driving forces in the Machinima community left uh, Machinima completely understandably, and I I get it. You know, you're doing heavy twelve-hour days. You don't have time to do Machinima. Mm. Uh, but it really, I think it really... It was a watershed moment, wasn't it, really, yeah, in the cinema? It, it was. 2007, yeah. 2008, and, and by the end of 2008, half the community had gone. Yeah. And uh, and then everything, you know, everything kind of changed. We were looking at, you know, the questions around, is machinima dead? All of that kind of stuff was emerging at that sort of point in time, and then dot com took over yeah and uh you know history has was forever shifted at that point but i think really the start of it was the the as ricky says the brain drain side of it from the community really well so many of the people paul marino in particular was a driving yeah. force in machinima yeah and not only did we lose his filmmaking uh and the films and the inspiration that came from that but we lost his leadership yeah we lost his ability to be able to um, 
put people together. But if you think about it, practically, it makes so much sense for him because why do all of this stuff for free? Yes, absolutely. You know, and when you can get paid for it and, and, and work on a high quality professional and your reputation gets bumped up too. So mm -hmm. I understand that completely. There is a certain sacrifice when you're um, a leader in the mission community. And I get that. And I, get that. I can see why Bioware wanted to do cinematic games with one, people who understood cinematics in games to come yeah. work yeah. for them yeah. and uh, of course with the mass effect remastered you can that was released a few months ago you can now check out their work with enhanced visuals but it's still mm. their work because they're the ones that animated originally and mm. um, right. yeah you've got a second uh, film for us haven't you i do i have a second one and then a quick note on the uh, short third one um pierpont school in brooklyn uh, it's a private school or excellent school they use machinima to teach the classics, and they have an Ovid machinima. Um, there's a fellow uh, who put together a theater called the Eck Theater, E-K, and their goal was to keep the classics present in a digital world. And since 2007, Pierpont students have performed live productions of Ovid, Shakespeare, and Yeats. Uh, I'm really chuffed that teachers are using machinima to implore the classics. If you go to, <clears throat> there's an online um, a theater that was organized by the person, the main person who put the, put all this together at the Pierpont. Uh, he has a theater called the Brick, and um, he mashes up uh, uh, classics as well. Um, and he'll he'll put together the the graphics. It'll be a theater presentation, but the graphics will be machinima projected on the stage. One of their big hits, which I, I unfortunately was not able to screen before this, but I am definitely going to do it, is called Grand Theft Ovid, <laughs> which I think is just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, they use Minecraft. Uh, the middle schoolers uh, using laptops are able to uh, learn about it. It's got a live action theater. Um, I think that's just terrific. Yeah. And uh, it was inspiring. Although it's a hybrid form of machinima, that idea of using the machinima idea to do quick illustrative things is something that I had thought way back at the beginning of machinima could be done. And I'm sure happy to see it uh, being done today. Live action, basically, isn't it? It's sort of live puppeteering, mm -hmm. which, is, which is interesting because we're seeing quite a lot of live theater performance of you know, machinima-like, let, let's play machinima-type performances uh -huh. using theatrical um, works, if you like, to, uh, you know, to engage audiences. And most recently, we've seen that done in the UK with the Royal Shakespeare Company themselves using live-action uh, mocap puppets uh, on screen to perform... A version of um, *Midsummer Night's Dream* called *Dream*, just an excerpt from it. Yeah. Um, but I think this, you know, and, and to to your to another point that you made earlier about the let's plays that we've been doing, I was in a sim in Second Life, um, talking to some guys that regularly put on Shakespeare plays as live performances inside Second Life, inside a virtual theatre, which I think is an interesting uh, development. But it's yeah. not necessarily machinima 
recording as such, but it is a machinima performance. Yeah. Frederick Kirshner was uh, promoting this way, way back. Yes, he uh, was. At the midpoint of machinima. I remember uh, some big uh, machinima festivals in New York where he did live productions using uh, I remember machinima that. backgrounds it's... and projection. Yeah, I remember. It's yeah, and he did more uh, in a German theater. Uh, so he was an early proponent of this. And I'm really glad to see that that, uh, that idea is still going. Congratulations, Pierpont. And um, I hope other uh, schools uh, think of this idea. I think it's really good. It's also something that I want to encourage machinima filmmakers to consider. There's no reason why you can't use machinima to create a, an educational program. Uh, it doesn't have to be that dry, um, facts-only sort of approach. You can have a lot of fun by using your um, uh, machinima in-game to tell a, a classic story. I mean, the the world of, um, of a free and uh, uh, publicly available copyright-free uh, material is just huge uh, to be able to do. Ambrose Bierce short stories, uh, Shakespeare, uh, many of the stories that uh, Lafcadio O'Hearn did are in the public domain. Um, so there's lots of material to choose from, and I, I encourage uh, machinima filmmakers to consider that as a possible subject for machinima in the future. Uh, before we move on, um, there's a thing about Ovid I want to share with you guys. Is I, read, sure. I looked at the article and I read through it, and a, friend, a very good friend of mine, her name's Jenny, is she's a home tutor uh, to help kids boost their, you know, their home learning um and she's also really into shakespeare so i thought she'd find this article um very interesting so i sent it to her and her answer which i got here which i'm going to read out i'm stunned it's so simple but a great way to to get the feel of shakespeare into schools with a low budget mm. and we had yes. this kind of lengthy discussion about how this is a great way to um because when you present shakespeare or other classical literature to kids it's very hard to get them interested because it's they're old books and they've got their own modern entertainment, yeah. which they're much more interested in. Yeah. But by she felt like by engaging the kids with a medium they understand, which is video games, it makes them interested in these stories mm. uh, and it's a yeah. good way to teach them. And so we had this le whole lengthy conversation, which I'm not going to read out because it'll take um, ages, but she was very excited by this idea. And, um, I think if she had that uh, the ability to uh, to teach literature in games herself, that is something that she would like to do. I think that's a very smart idea. I actually became interested in Shakespeare through the uh, Classics Illustrated series of comics mm. um, because I was just too intimidated to to actually grab one of the books. I mean, you open it up when when you're a kid and you see all of this language, Elizabethan language, and you're just what the hell? I have no idea what any, it's like the Bible, you know, the Bible, you can look at it. You, I had no idea what this is, but then the illustrated classics put it in a comic book form and I could follow it. easily. I thought Macbeth, wow, that is great. Witches. Wow. That's great. Mm -hmm. And that led me into slowly figuring it out. And I got over it and I learned how to read the language and, you know, it made a big difference. It was a doorway opening for me. Mm -hmm. So I think machinima can be a doorway opening for, of kids who want to learn the classics, especially Shakespeare. Yeah, it's an interesting visual medium as well, I think. That's the, yeah. that's the point. Damien, you've got something great for us, haven't you? Yeah. All right. Um, so 
uh, I've picked two films uh, this week. Um, so the first one is Robert Stoneman's War of the Servers. And um, what he has done is he's taken the story of War of the Worlds by H.G. Uh, Wells. And he's applied that story to the world of Gary's Mod. So instead of Martians coming down to Earth, it's these uh, griefers who who appear on their Gary's Mod server. And they, they kind of build these... I guess the game couldn't allow tripods, but they've got these towers on wheels, and it's all really horrendously put together with all kinds of random junk. And they basically rampage through the server, destroying everything, just like um, the Martians do in, in the original story. And all the terminology has changed to match um, Gary's mod and the, the game. Um, but it's it's very true to... Like, it's more true to the book than some of the Hollywood adaptations, um, which says a lot, really. But So even though it's about the video game itself it's and it's just so well done and he he's, he follows the character through the through the invasion and he's narrating it and um, stuff happens and he struggles to survive as he tries to escape from the, the um from being killed and um yeah it's just a it's the first thing that came to mind when we started talking about classics last month I thought, this is what i have to pick it's a great film i, I mean i really enjoyed watching it but an an hour and 40 minutes <laughs> you have to be committed to watch it it's and actually worth it, i've seen it, well i i uh, i've seen the film in so many different forms i obviously know the story but i think what was quite interesting with this one was it it seemed to mirror not so much what i'd seen in the films but the stage play by jeff wayne and mm. the soundscape design that he'd used and all the the music pieces were from the stage play. Oh, um, that's interesting. Which I think is very interesting. Um and I, I did a bit of um a bit of a comparison to excerpts from the stage play to how he'd done it, and I think he was probably inspired by that. Um as you know, as obviously as well as the book. Um but it, you know, he's got a really, really droll um, voice acting style with it. So he's yes, he's very, um, you know. But I, but I, I suspect, as I said, I think he's mimicking the stage play version of it. That would make um, sense. In, in doing I, I, it, I can't say I've seen the stage play, which is something I need to fix at some point. But um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think I, because that's narrated in the same sort of way. Um, not that I've seen it, just seen the excerpts from it. It looks brilliant, actually. Um, but there's also something which I was going to ask you about, Damien. There's there's clearly a gamer backstory to this as well, which is a little bit hidden from me, not being in that PHW community, uh, because there's an awful lot of references to it, um, and. I, you know, it's it's in some ways quite difficult to follow because you don't have the references to this particular community. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if you had any of the insight into that side of it. Uh, I never played Gary's Mod, so um, I can't really elaborate too much because it wasn't the world that I was involved with. Uh, most of what I actually know about Gary's Mod is from watching this film. Oh, okay. Um, I do know that it was a... 
before Minecraft became the the big creative game that everyone loved, it was Gary's mod was the it's a mod for Half Life, and you had this gun you could carry around, and you can use it to build things by picking up objects and sticking them together. And people would make vehicles and buildings and um, all kinds of stuff. Um, but I, I never played it, so I can't really explain it um, too well. Uh, and I know that bits and pieces of the terminology. I, when I first saw the film, I looked looked up to see what I could find about it, and I, I didn't do it this time. But I do remember it was true to um, thinking oh yeah he's put a lot of effort to make sure this is it's obviously designed for Gary's mod players to yes. enjoy and yes. uh, mm. which makes sense I mean that's what he was making it with but mm. um, and I do remember he had a very good re- reaction from Gary's mod players when he released it originally yeah this is a perfect example of how machinima speaks to other creators of machinima um, Gmod was an underused machinima tool, especially for narrative uh, storytelling. It was great for skits and um, uh, Saturday Night Live farce kinds of things. You know, you'd build wild machines or or put the G-man with his face all changed because you can adjust the expression on characters into bizarre ways and. Um, but it was never really used very much for narrative short uh, storytelling. So I was really intrigued to go back and, and watch this because I missed it when it first came out. And um, I, I was obsessed with H.G. Wells for got four months, read everything I could about him, reread a ton of novels, including War of the Worlds. And War of the uh, Worlds was a, not only was a, was a great science fiction novel and established the, uh, the sort of primal archetype of the invasion uh, story, which uh, went through science fiction and still today uh, it's going through it. But uh, Wells always had a, 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 a political message and a social message and everything he wrote. And he would frequently have a character who was a mouthpiece for that. Uh, well, I think it's fascinating the fact that you mentioned that he, you think he adapted Stoneman adapt this primarily from the stage play, and I think that's even more evidence because all of that social commentary is really gone uh, from this adaptation. Basically, he replaces it with in-jokes to the Gmod community, which I understand perfectly because those are the people you're, you're, you're making it for. That's the specific audience you're making it for. But when you're not in that community and then you add the length to it, it makes it very hard to sustain uh, interest in such a long, long thing. Um, in fact, later I'd like to talk to you, both of you, about can machinima sustain, in general, can it sustain long-form narrative storytelling? In this case, it didn't, although I think that um, I think there was a lot of really interesting stuff in it. And I admire the hard work and creativity that went into it. I watched the short trailer that they did for it, which was great. Excellent short advertising trailer for the film. In fact, I actually preferred the trailer to the whole film. I know that I I don't mean that as a disrespectfully, because I think the War of the Servers is a really interesting and important film, um, especially as an adaptation. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But I really enjoyed it. 
Um, I thought it was really interesting. I probably watched maybe half of it, I think, skipped a little bit, got to the end. It became a little redundant and repetitive with people doing the same sorts of animations over and over again, going back and forth. Mm. And the end jokes made it hard to keep your disbelief suspended. But I thought it was a really good pick. Thanks, Damien. And you've got another one for us as well, I think. Yes. So um, <laughs> before I start talking about this film, I'm going to preface it by saying humor is a very subjective thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Famous last uh, words. <laughs> so um, mm. uh, I'm just trying to think how we're going to start this one. Um, so The Nubbits, it is a very adult humor take on The Hobbit by Tolkien. And That's I, N N O B B I T. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, this is not my kind of humor at all. I did not find it funny, but I do appreciate the amount of work that went into returning the Hobbit into a, a even a comedy film uh, like this. And it more or less follows the basic plotline of the Hobbit, but it adds all this um, adult humor into it, which is not really my cup of tea. Um, I'm not really sure what else I can say about it because I, I don't want to just say I don't like the film because of the humour. I like the film because of the hard work that went into it. And it's made with iClone. It must have taken such a long time to to do it because it is more or less the whole book of The Hobbit turned into yeah. this sort of parody. Um, so it's not just like, it's not just one chapter or a small section. It's the whole thing. And it's, and what I remember is he was inspired because um, it was around the time that they announced they were going to adapt The Hobbit as originally two films uh, uh, before Peter Jackson took over the role and it became three. And in some ways it's actually more condensed and feels like the right length for The Hobbit rather than the three three hour long films that we ended up getting, which felt a little bit excessive. So in a lot of ways this, this comedy version is a more watchable form as long as you don't mind the, again, the humor. Um, yeah. yeah. So what do you guys think of it? Well, it's what I call toilet humor, really. Yeah. <laughs> and it, and it, and it's toilet humor from the very opening credit. This film is rated I for immature audiences. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it goes on with the character, character names and, uh, <laughs> the clan names. Uh, I mean, it, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a very bizarre <laughs> retelling of the Tolkien story through a, a a process of adaptation. Some, I mean, some really great songs actually that keep the pace going because I mean, it's an hour and a half long again, which is a really long time to listen to this approach to, to humor um but what i what i what i think probably because i did watch it pretty much all the way through um because i felt i should and I, I i remember it coming out but i don't remember it what watching it all the way through but when i did sit and watch it there's uh you know some hidden cultural references which make it or pitch it just at a particular period of time, which make it quite intriguing. 
So I picked up on references to things like Planet of the Apes and Silence of the Lambs yeah. and, and all of that sort of stuff, which I thought was quite a, a clever way of a, appealing to a particular you know, um, type of audience, I suppose, and, a, and referencing a cultural period in time as well as through the retelling of, the, of this sort of classic story. Yeah. I think it's an ambitious piece, to be fair. It's, it's ambitious in what it, is. it tried to do. And I think it generally, you know, if you can stick with the humour, it's carried it off reasonably well. There's some pretty good voice acting in there. And there's some in-tune singing, which I quite liked as well. Yes, yes. Well, it was Anima Technica, Big Streck. Um, and Big Streck has another film that we've uh, selected that we'll talk about later and others. You know, I applaud their Killian. Um, exact Killian, Killian. That's right. Killian was the, the the singer, I think. That's right. Brilliant. Uh, it's a great example of what fun you can have with machinima and satire, and I think that the uh, machinima community, especially, uh, appreciated satire because it's an irreverent community that loves to poke fun of the games that they're watching to take the serious moments out. I think um, you have to have a pretty uh, accepting uh, uh, attitude in order to accept a lot of the cursing uh, that's in the film. Gandalf, in particular, character <laughs> is a, a great cursor. In fact, you know, I I, I pride called, myself on. He's called Gone Death. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I pride myself on my cursing, and 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 I was impressed with some of the. <laughs> Cursing. There's one at one point. Uh, Gone Dev says, "Well, f you say, k my succotash." At one point, which I thought was just incredibly creative cursing. Mm. Um, I, but again, you're 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 sort of caught up. You're sort of caught in the can machinima support long form narration. Now, I think it was more effective in this film because there are musical interludes. There are probably about five or six musical interludes, which actually were my favorite parts of the of the film, because I thought they were musically they were so well done. They uh, reflected pop styles of the day, a variety of pop styles. They had African American characters in them, which I thought was superb. Uh, something that the novel doesn't have in it. Um, but I thought that variety helped keep you going through the the story as opposed to war of the servers, which didn't have enough variety in it for, to sustain your, your interest. Uh, but it is for a, a certain kind of viewer. If you don't mind the cursing and the toilet humor, um, uh, it, it can be a lot of fun. And in a way the, the, the satire of Tolkien is right on, on is spot on because right after uh, Tolkien's uh, trilogy came out the Harvard lampoon, did a parody called Board of the Rings, which they borrowed a little bit from. I think uh, the Frodo character was Frito, like a Frito-Lay kind of thing. And there was a lot of toilet humor in that. And that was highly successful. But the advantage in that is that it was shorter. I think it was like under 100 pages. I think this film could have benefited from a shorter presentation. I think it would have been more effective uh, under an hour, maybe 40 minutes, or even in a, a staggered series, like a 10-minute uh, to 12-minute 
pieces or 15 minute pieces. But I was I was very impressed with the quality, the especially the audio. It's no mean thing to get people together to make uh, good audio recordings and then get good performances on top of that. So it's an inspiring production and it was a really excellent choice for satire in adapting classic uh, classic literature. Mm, absolutely. And oh, one last thing is that I wanted to say is that Tolkien, when he wrote The Hobbit, he was writing a book in the tradition of British children's literature, which up to that point tended to patronize children. Um, it spoke in this little sing song, and now the little goblin came out and did this, you know, and he wrote in that same style. Um, all, in fact, he wrote the book for his kids, essentially. The, it was only in the Lord of the Rings that he, he, got, he got out of that style and wrote in an adult voice, which made a huge difference. But I think it's fascinating that here you have this sort of sing-songy, patronizing novel made into this very adult <laughs> subject <laughs> and theme. So the satire is not only on the story, but it's on the style of the, of the book as well. You know, which I thought was another level of uh, of humor for me. Should we talk about Phil's choice? Yes, yes, indeed. Haunter of the Dark. Who wants to kick that one off? Do you want to start, Ricky? Sure. Haunter of the Dark was done by Biggs Trek, who was one of the three that did uh, The Nobbit. Um, it's an adaptation of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's short story, The Haunter of the Dark. I um, uh, have a sort of jaundiced view of it, um, a biased view of it, because I played the lead character and also did the sound design in it. But, I, and, and so I, I didn't pick it. Uh, I always thought it was a great film, but so I was really happy that Phil picked it. Um, watching it again, it's hard for me to judge the film because I've always had a difficult time watching my own or listening to my own performances. They all seem mannered to me. But then again, I think that's everything seems mannered to me that I do. And I think that's just a inability to see what I'm actually doing. But uh, so I'm not going to talk about the uh, narration at all, but I am going to talk about the production and the sound editing. Um, this was my best piece of work as a sound designer because Phil Brown, Big Trek, was very, very specific about certain kinds of sounds that he wanted in the, uh, in the film. And it, and it required creativity because I had to come up with sounds that you've, that's never been heard before, like the sound of the uh, creature that is featured in it. And that was a real challenge for me to come up with something. And we, I would send him examples and he'd say, no more of this, less of that. Then I'd do that and he'd say, that's great. Now can we add this? So it was a real collaborative uh, work with him. And that's another reason why I think uh, it was so, uh, the sound I think was so effective in it because Phil directed me in it. He just didn't accept my sound design uh, for that. But I also thought he did a really great job of catching the sort of, um, I don't know how to describe it. There's a, a gritty depressed quality to the whole look of mm. the of the 
of the sets of the people. Uh, even in his, if you know the story, it's a fellow who comes um, as a writer. He's trying to write. He's in his room. Even his room is this depressing place. There's just he he creates this physical embodiment of some sort of aura that is just making this place awful and depressing. And I think that captured the essence of Lovecraft. He did several Lovecraft adaptations, but I think this was his best. Um, it showed his attention to detail, is the intelligence in putting it together. I kind of, I, the only thing that really falls apart, oh, he was, he was very careful about his adaptation. The adaptation follows right along with the story. The only thing that falls down today is the rendering quality. Um, but all of the films that we've chosen, uh, for the most part, uh, suffer from that. It made me wonder what it would have been like had he done this in Unreal or Unity today. But I just loved it. I thought it was, um, I, I thought it was one of the best adaptations of Lovecraft that I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot. But it was also a really terrific example of what you of how you can do moody, weird horror in machinima and be very effective. Damien. Um, yeah, um, I remember when, so this and this film and the Nobbit were released roughly around the same time period on the, mainly on the TMO, a radio site. So there's a big community and they all collaborated on each other's films, which is why you see Big Trek is involved with both of them. And one of the things I remember as soon as the, I saw the title was the scene when the hat falls down. Um, everyone in the community had no idea how Biggs Trek managed to pull that hat off uh, and mm. how to make that hat because uh, no one had gone to that much trouble um, with their productions before. And I remember him saying something along the lines of it was a real pain to do it, but he really wanted that to happen. So he spent a huge amount of time just animating this hat, trying to get it to fall naturally and then go towards the camera. And that's when I started thinking about iClone because he spent so much time, not just... It's very easy to make a film. You put the character in a room and then you animate the character, but you don't... You ignore the rest of the environment. But he spent right. a lot of time making the world feel alive and detailed. Like there's that shot of the spider and the spider's animated. And there's no reason... It doesn't add anything to the story, but it just makes the world feel like there's more going yes. on than just what's happening with this one character who's in the scene. And that that kind of details in the entire film all the way through, and I, I found that inspiring back then, and I found it inspiring watching it again um, yesterday. So uh, that, that's my take of it. Is even though the rendering quality isn't as good as what we can produce now, it's not always it's about the rendering quality. Yeah, it's still effective, but it, there's things that it's the detail. It doesn't matter how well they re rendered. It's just just the the extra things in yes. there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This film for me was brilliant. I, you know, I'm not usually a, a horror fan at all. Um, it, it just creeps me out too much. But you know, the, the, I really, really enjoyed this. This was great voice acting, Ricky. Really great oh, voice. I acting. can agree with that there as well. Um, and I, and I love the drama that actually the you know the filming, the narrative, the music, the soundscape. There, it was all so well matched and complimentary. Um, nothing dominated over 
any of the other things. And I think if you took one aspect of the narration or the the images or the soundscape, if you took any of those away, you'd lose something in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but so this was really, really well balanced as a as a as a, a film comprising of all those kind of um, components. And and I, I think it, you know, that that to me is is quite clever. And you don't often see it in Machinima productions where that you've got that balance right. I mean, you could, we could argue that Snow Witch had the same kind of balance as well. You know, where you got the those aspects perfectly um, in tune together. So it was a um, you know really really oh it's a fabulous adaptation um, and I can see really when I was looking at looking at it and then reading what's going on on, on YouTube on uh, around the same sort of time that it's drawn in a lot of Lovecraft fans um, not not just Machinima fans which I think is also testament mm. to, to how well it was received. Um, it certainly, for me, recreated the creepiness yes. um, that, you, that you wanted to portray. And, I, and the detail, I think, was amazing. So you, you mentioned the spider, but what I picked up on the spider was, was the scratching of the spider. Hmm. Um, so you could hear the scratching of the spider on its web and, um, and the dust. You could, you could hear, the, hear dust, right. which is weird, isn't it? Um, and footfalls and a ticking clock and running water. And, you know, this sort of switch between first person and third person views, I think, was was also really it was it was really interesting. And it helped create that sort of pathos between the character and the the mystery of this sort of shining object. Yeah. So I think brilliantly well done. Well done. All of you. Well done. It's a a claustrophobic atmosphere. It's very well done. I think that he did. That even, in a way, that perhaps the rendering, the lower rendering quality works for this, that a well, higher rendering quality may not, because I, I was going to muddy, say that. there's a muddiness to. Yeah. I, yeah, I was, I was, I was actually going to say, say that as well, because one of the things I picked up on as I was reading through some of the comments as well was there was one comment that really struck me, and it was something that I used to get comments uh, back from audiences when I used to do showcases um, and, and it was it was it was a common set of comments really uh, and it was along the lines of this it was it's voice acting 10 out of 10 storytelling 10 out of 10 um, ability to build um, suspense 10 out of 10 music 10 out of 10 animation 5.2 out of 10 overall score a <laughs> And it's a comment that I used to get a lot about uh, don't get the animation. Why would you do it with Machinima? Why, why um, ruin the animation side of it? Why not do it in something that sort of has a more slick look and feel? So the more, you know, unreal type stuff that we've been looking at over the last few months. Um, however, with this film, I think if you did do this in a more slick animation package... Um, I think you might have to rethink what the content is too, because it's that it's that sort of um, render uh, speed uh, or you know speed in which it it, it um, plays that actually helps build the drama of it. You know, so you so you you freeze for a split second on a face, 
or you haven't got the detail on the face, you've got the sense of the face, or you've got the sense of something else. And it's all of that which which helps tell the story. And I think in the end, I think I, talk, I talked to you in the week about this a little bit, the, the render to me is more like um, machinima as comic rather than machinima as film in this mm. particular example. And as I said, I think if it was a slicker animation process, you'd lose that drama in the storytelling with this particular film. It'd have to work a lot harder than it than it seems to at the moment. There'd have to be more content to fill in the gaps that you would have um, whilst you're looking at the at the face or at whatever it is you're you're looking at. So it's almost like a series of, of stills that focus, um, on, you know, on on the different things, and, and it's that which communicates the depth of drama and the story so well in this particular one, I think. Now you said that, I'm trying to imagine the film rendered in the latest edition of iClone in 4K, and I can't imagine it working. No, I, think I don't it, think it, it would. would. It would just, everything would be crystal clear and you see everything, but it would it would lose something with that. So I think maybe it's better it's not rendered in that way. I, I think it's definitely one where the... As actually, so you know, quite a lot of the films that we've been talking about over over time, you have to remember the historical context because that is also where part of the story is for Machinima too. So I, you know, I don't think it's a case of just recreating it. But this one was yeah. lovely, great choice, well, Phil. Well done. Yeah, excellent, excellent choice. Well, the issue of um, uh, the justification for Machinima versus professional machinima comes up again and i think a lot of times people just are not informed um, and are unwilling to accept uh, a, a style so many times people um talk about oh well that show was really realistic or i prefer realism i don't, I don't, I don't like things that aren't real when they don't realize that realism is a style it's a particular way of presenting things so that it appears to be real it's not real. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just yeah. as just as other films are are present reality in different ways and it's a style. A Tarkovsky film that spends enormous amounts of times photographing the debris on the ground. Well, that's real, but it's not real in the film, you know what I mean? It's a style. So it's a kind of audience unwilling to accept the style of whatever it is. They they see they see the story, they see the acting, and those are all things that they can relate to. But they see something and they go, "Well, that's bad," because it's a different style of animation. Whereas that's all it is. I mean, sure, if you put a Pixar animated scene right next to a Machinima animated scene from this period, you'll see the difference. But they're two different styles of animation. So you can accept one or you can accept them both. I choose to accept them both. You know what I mean? That's what Pixar does. This is what Machinima does. So as a style, I can defend this style in the Lovecraft story because, as you point out, they're almost a series of still image vignettes, which is perfect for that. It adds a sort of antiquarian feel to it. It gives a sense of um, oddness. Uh, that a, a a perfectly rendered animation style would not, you know. 
Um, so I just think it's a matter of being able, willing to suspend your disbelief for something that you're not comfortable with. The other side Go of it is, it. if you render something in a very realistic style, uh, the best of what's capable, what you're able to do at the time, give it five years, that will have dated horribly, no matter yes. how much yes. effort you put into it. But if you do it in well, a stylized well, comic version uh, like this, five years from now, that's still going to look good because it's got that stylized. It's not real. It's yes. It's um, it's more of a slightly cartoony take on it. Um, and I was thinking about that with my own project with Air to the Empire because I made the characters models based on photos of the characters to try and make them look real. But I also know that in five years' time, people are going to watch and say, this looks terrible compared to what's being done now. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, you know, I think in a way, American audiences in particular were all spoiled by Disney uh, because Disney was the first major animation style that people embraced as, hey, this can be an art form. And it was so flawless. The animation style was so flawless. They expected all other kinds of animation to be that way. So when Europeans started showing their crazy animation styles and their weird stuff that they were doing, people went, oh, no, that, that's not real. I, I, I can't appreciate that. That's not you. You don't do that in animation. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you struggle with what I call the Disney effect in animation all the time. Yeah. People who don't watch animation regularly or don't are unwilling to suspend their disbelief or often even if it isn't machinima, but other forms of animation will go, well, this isn't Disney. So uh, I just don't think it, it's amateurish. I, I, I just don't like it. You know? I think as more people play games though, and you know, I think, I think that argument is going away slowly because mm. more, more people are, are more used to that kind of animation style through the games that they play now. But, but I suppose one of the other things that's changing at the same kind of time is that the animation quality in games is, is advancing quite um, significantly too. Oh, it certainly is, is, yeah. Just shifting the game somewhat anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it, it can be. No, we've been I've got crazy. some films. Yeah, we wanted to talk about your stuff before we go crazy. Yeah, yeah let's let's do that. I, I've, got, I've got a couple of films that I wanted to, to mention. The first one is actually a trilogy of tales by John Gower, which was taken from his poem Lover's Confessional, Confessio Amantis. Um, it's, it's a half an hour long film and it's um, produced by um, a Second Life um, machinima uh, creator called Hypadia Pickens. Now, um, I don't know how many of you guys would have heard of John Gower. He was, he was a, a lesser known English poet writing around the same sort of period of time as Geoffrey Chaucer, who, who you'll know from Canterbury Tales infamy. In fact, um, Gower was a friend of, of Chaucer. Um, so the period and uh, place that this represents is 14th century Europe. And Hypadia's um, day job actually is as a, a professor of English with a particular interest in Old and Middle English literature. And this particular piece is one where she wanted to creatively and critically shed light on Gower's tales, which we've never really heard that much of, or much less of than, than Chaucer. Um, so here we have these three tales of human moral behaviour pertaining to the vices of love, taken from Gower's, can you believe this, 30,000 line poem, Confessio Amantis, um, which was written in, in actually, it was written in Middle English. 
um, with a, with an interesting use of Second Life to present characters as strange and ancient beings, mystical objects, and also contemporary figures in modern settings. And in fact, albeit about morality, the portrayal of, um, and the poem is really about immoral behaviour, and that's probably a better lens through which to try and interpret these tales. Now, I can tell you a little bit about the tales because I'm sure some of you will struggle to understand what this is about. The first tale is about envy. It's about the god Jupiter, genius, who sends down an angel to Earth to visit two men to understand their vices of covetousness and envy. And the angel gives them each a gift of a a wish for whatever they most craved in life. But um, he said that one would have double that of his friend. So the covetous man speaks first to ask for worldly goods, assuming his friend would make the same wish. Um, But the envious man is actually made to make his wish first. And he realised that any wish for worldly goods he made would mean double for his friend. So instead he wishes to make himself blind in one eye, leading to the other man becoming blind in both eyes. Right, right. Um, So uh, you've got this kind of uh, open question through this kind of tale is why is man so determined to see ruin prevail? That's the the morality in this particular story. And the second tale is about wrath and melancholy. And it tells the story of a king who has two children, a boy, Mashere, and a girl, Kanas, who, as they grow, form an incestuous relationship resulting in a child. Now, Mashere runs away and the father turns his rage at this outcome on the daughter, whom he demands kills herself, which she does after writing a letter to her brother. And then on the child, which he abandons in the woods to be eaten by wild animals. So there's no happy ending for any of them. That's the moral in that one. And then the final tale Hypatia presents is about pride um, expressed as complaint. Now, this tells the story of a man who has everything but for a misdemeanor is condemned to death. Uh, The people, however, give him a reprieve if he can say what all women want. He is at a complete loss, needless to say, uh, until one day he happens upon an ugly woman who tells him the answer, but in return, he must marry her. He gives the answer, is reprieved, marries the woman to discover she has a secret, but he must choose. Um, She is either ugly by day or by night. In other words, he can show her off to his friends or enjoy his evenings, but never have both. Um, So the story ends with him acknowledging the answer he gave, which saved his life. And I'll leave you to enjoy the outcome of that one. Now, um, what's interesting about this, uh, and I think um, if you ever read old English um, works, this particular poem was written in what what they called octosyllabic English couplets, um, which I think is reflected in the way that Hypatia has attempted to tell the tales. So through her adaptation, you have this interesting mix of these kind of elegant visuals haunting narrative spoken excerpts, um, which Hypatia performs herself, and subtitles um, all put to this medieval music soundscape that evokes the period she's trying to portray, rather than the more contemporary time you actually see portrayed by the characters and the, and the sims that she's chosen in Second Life, including 
in in the last one, which was partially set at the Petrovsky Flux installation, if you remember that. Um, oh, yeah. We spoke about that um, a couple of episodes back. So overall, I think it makes for an interesting viewing experience where you, where you, you actually as a viewer have to work really hard to follow these plots, understand the morals in these stories, almost hear the old English words that are being spoken or, or sort of semi-sung by Hypadia and then read and try and make sense of what the subtitle text is on the, on the screen in front of you. And I think you need to play it a couple of times before you get a sense of just how much effort has gone into uh, making the work um, to portray these tales without necessarily losing the original work in the process. And I think that's the interesting part here, the way that the adaptation has um, kept to the to the original as much as she, she can. Um, uh, and you can kind of clearly see that it's been a, a labour of love for Hypatia. I think there'd probably be very few people that could create this kind of work. Um, needless to say, I was quite impressed by this sort of piece. I should say... Um, for this month, we've also interviewed um, uh, Hypadia, her name's Sarah Higley in real life, um, about her machinima work. And she talks a bit about this. Um, and it's, it's the piece of machinima that she's created of which she is most proud, I think. Um, it was, however, the last machinima she ever made. And she talks a bit about that in the interview, too. Um, what did you guys make of it? I thought it was just... I thought it was a work of art. Go ahead. Oh, I, I, we both spoke at the same time as we usually do. Um, I remember when we received it for the Machinima Expo, and I feel like at the time I may not have really understood the stories that well. I think in that time since, since um, my, I've grown and matured in my understanding of storytelling and so on. Uh, so I was a lot, found it a lot easier to get into this and enjoy it this time around. Now uh, I can't say I'm familiar with John Gower's work, but I don't think any of us are, <laughs> <laughs> or ever would be. No, but um, I was really impressed by watching it again, and I was glad that you mentioned the subtitles. But the subtitles translated into modern English, so that we can understand. Like she's reading the old English um, version of the story, giving us the modern English subtitles so we can follow along uh, for yes. those of us who don't aren't too familiar with old english um i thought the th three stories are all very interesting I, I think the last one i found most intriguing about the the guy that had to um answer the question of what do all women want and uh as it, i was in, kind of waiting to see what the outcome of that would be and, and i don't want to spoil how it ends <laughs> but um yeah it's an excellent film that um uh, it's hard to hear that that's the last uh, Machinima production she's ever made. Um, I'll have to listen to the interview when, when the, the, we release that and find out why. But um, yeah, I, I, it's it's very um, much the kind of film I expect Hypatia to make, and uh, I'm sad that she's stopped. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um... I think the detail in this and the, and the deadline that she was working to on it were the kinds of things that that uh, just about broke her on it, really, because mm, yeah. the detail is is stunning. I mean, with regard to those subtitles, she's actually translated um, almost word for word 
um, which makes even subtitles a little bit challenging to follow, you know, to try and keep up with the, with the story. But, you know, I think Hypatia is one of the first, one of the few real artists uh, working in Machinima. And I say, I say that uh, generously, uh, meaning that other people who have created great films like the Snow Witch and everything, I I enjoy them in Hunter of the Dark. I think they're great, but they're not art. Um, Hypatia's work is truly creative. Uh, creative in a sense, uh, my definition of art, creative art is something you take two disparate things that aren't, weren't really meant to go together. You put them together in a unique way using your imagination. And she has done this. This is a kind of an experimental medieval film that she's created inside of machinima and she found the perfect medium to do it in machinima for one thing it's quick you can put together stuff where you don't have to go follow the um traditional uh 3d production process you can do it quick and easy it's in a world and then also the look and style of of, of second life and the way she created the characters and put them together and moved them works perfectly for the story she's trying to tell. Because we were talking about realism a, a little bit ago. This is completely unrealistic. And yet it's real for the world that she has created. You know what I mean? It makes perfect sense. It's not an easy uh, form of storytelling that she's chosen. But then again, her ideas and the source material is not particularly easy uh it may take two or three viewings to 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 figure it out because you're asked to do several things as you're watching the film that a lot of times you don't do it you don't do in machinima yeah uh, stunt vi stunt videos you understand immediately this you don't <laughs> you know absolutely um, i thought that her work i was so intrigued with her work because a, it was creative and it was artistic, but it was so on the fringe of subject matter for Machinima. But it comes out of her own life of a deep interest in medieval culture mm -hmm. and deep interest in the, the human themes. They're almost morality plays in a sense. Um, the medieval form of storytelling is certainly not part of the modern method of telling stories. Modernism back in the 20s and 30s just rejected all of that. Well, that stuff remains in our consciousness, our public consciousness, and people do tell stories based on that, on those medieval myths, those medieval eyes, uh, ideas. And I deeply respect her work in this, and I'm very sorry that she uh, had to move away from it um, for whatever reasons. Yeah. But yeah. her body of work is significant and totally unique in machinima. Absolutely. And, that, and which brings me to my second film, which is also, uh, my final film, is also by Hypatia. And this is another one um, using this time, um, this is Stolen Child. This is only four minutes long. This is not a half an hour long. So four minutes poem by William Butler Yeats, which was written in 1889. Uh, and it's something which, again, Hypatia adapted and performed in Second Life. And I say performed because it's it's more than a reading, it's sung. This one is sung. She's she's 
She's um, used um, a piece of royalty-free music um, created by Kevin MacLeod. Um, the music beautifully fits the way the poem has been adapted. Um, the performance is really haunting and it's almost chant-like uh, and the visuals depict a kind of fantastical fairy tale. Not a nice fairy tale, actually, but a fantastical fairy tale and the mystique of these sort of strange creatures in the night um, are, are kind of used to portray the eeriness of the theft of a child in the woods. Uh, and Hypatia's approach to, to this adaptation, I think has been quite interesting. And it, it, it gets to your point about the, the experimental, really. And it's not something it's not something we often see. I don't think I've ever seen it, actually, in Machinima. And that's where she's using this virtual environment, this second life environment, to unpack the story. Um, rather than... Um, you know, adapt it. She's kind of you used used the sim to sort of unpack it somehow, which I think is, is intriguing. So, so you've got this this poem that's 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 telling something, and she's putting these visuals to it, and it creates something bigger than the poem, if you are yes. bigger than the sum of the parts. Wow. Um, and um, she she filmed it on this sim called Spirit. Um, working with an artist called Claudia Tutu Jewel, uh, and it's it's this person's work that that um, I think is something that she draws on a lot in her work. So these are these are really quite ethereal creations which she she uses again and again and again in her machinima um, works. Um, now about the story here, Yeats um, was referring to an Irish peasant legend in which a child is beguiled by fairies. Uh, and what's interesting is that the poem has inspired numerous contemporary retellings, including, for example, Spielberg's film AI Artificial Intelligence, um, which features the, the refrain in this poem prominently, and it's also been featured in the Small Worlds episodes in Torchwood. So it's a, it's a common... You know, it's a poem that we're familiar with, albeit in many other guises. Um, again, what did you think? Uh, is the, vis the first thing that caught my eye uh, was obviously the visuals, because you're watching it. And I was thinking, what was this made in? Because it doesn't look like Second Life. Like every ah. time you watch a film, you can, uh, a machine film, you can pretty much always instantly recognise it as, that was made in iClone, that was made in Grand Theft Auto, or Second Life, or whatever. But because there, there are certain telltale things about every single way, every single uh, engine, and you, the way it renders things and the way characters look, even if they're completely new characters designed for the film, you still know that, that was made in whatever platform it is. But there was something about this film that didn't look like Second Life, and I, I kind of paused it several different points throughout the film to just have a good look at the, the images I was seeing. Mm. I thought, this doesn't look anything like second life film so then i checked the date of the film thinking well maybe it's re released in a made more recently and it's a more updated version of second life but no it is 20 it's not, not 20 it's 12 years old yeah. um so 2012 it, it was released 2012 it says 2009 on the uh notes does it that's yeah. my fault yeah no it's 2012 i think it was released uh, okay well um it's 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 around the same time that we were using Second Life for the um, Mission Expo, so I spent a lot of time in there and and, and know the way 
the platform looks. So I don't know how she managed to pull off this, um, the way this island and where the water and everything works, because it doesn't look anything like Second Life. And uh, that, that, visually, that really stood out to me. Um, again, I'm not too familiar with the poem that this story is based on, but um, I thought it was poem. a very haunting, yeah, haunting poem. performance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the sim, so she used this sim by this other artist, Spirit Sim. It's called Spirit, which I think, you know, so there's, so there's a lot of artists in the, in the mix here, a lot of collaboration going on in the mix here, which is quite interesting. Well, the something person, that you, yeah, the person who created the sim, they obviously spent a lot of work time on this to make it not look like Second Life. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. yeah. I can appreciate that because you kind of taken the platform and then making it look something completely different from that platform. That's a, that's a talent I really admire. So here's a, the sort of um, a nice to know about Hypadia, about Sarah. Um, because the thing that struck me about her was the, the ability to adapt these works and then perform them. You know, not, to, to Ricky's point as well about... Um, you know, the ability to pick visuals uh, in the way that she has done and use that as part of the ad adaptive process. So when I interviewed her, we, we, we went, you know, right through what, what her background was and all of this kind of stuff. Got right to the end of the interview, switched the recording off, and she said, well, because the one thing that I didn't tell you was um, that I wrote an episode of Star Trek. <laughs> uh, and it turns out that she wrote an episode of Star Trek that was released in I think 91 uh, and it was about her imaginings of what Second Life would later become um, and she wrote the character and if I can just remember the name of the character it's performed by Dwight Schultz. Lieutenant Barclay. Yes. So she wrote that, um, which apparently was the first time that uh, people or a person with um, a, uh, a, a, a brain challenge, if you like, um, was performed in uh, a contemporary um, TV serial. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so there you go. Hypadia, a.k.a. Sarah Higley, a.k.a. Sally Caves. We know your work now, well and truly. <laughs> Standing ovation. Standing ovation. Absolutely. And the character that she created, Lieutenant Barkley, ended up being a recurring character throughout yes. the next generation, and he was yep. in quite a few episodes yes. of Voyager as well. Yeah. So there you uh, go. That was all because of her. Absolutely. Uh, so that's not in the interview, but she comes out with <laughs> very many more interesting things. About well, I'm, I'm just thrilled with the uh, picks this uh, this month. Um, I, I think we could have come up with double the amount of uh, films we had. We miss yes. you, Phil. I, I would have liked to hear your thoughts on some of these things, but we'll have you in as soon as we can. Um, Absolutely. Thanks a lot, everybody, for for your thoughts and your choices on these films. Um, as usual, you can contact us at completelymachinima.com. And um, we're going to come back uh, uh, with our next episode. will be a brief discussion of the topic of uh, can machinima uh, sustain a long-form film length. Uh, so um, 
Thanks, uh, Tracy. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back in a bit. Cheers. Bye.